it's 15 degrees outside Celsius, Bruce. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. That's in your you know mid 50s or something in in Fahrenheit, and it's uh, and sunny, which for us right now is like summer weather, basically. <laughs> shorts, yeah. I, I'm going to be riding in shorts. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us today for the second time is Bruce Rogers, uh, who you may have heard, and if you haven't heard, you definitely must, about six episodes back, talking about a novel way of estimating your aerobic threshold or LT1, VT1 using uh, heart rate variability and uh, an analysis that, until speaking with Bruce, I had no idea even existed so uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce's episode was actually one of our most popular. And in fact, it's the number two in our, in our current lineup. And aside from being downloaded a whole bunch of times, it has spawned a really terrific and fun discussion, uh, both for me and for Bruce, um, about how to use this new methodology, what are some of its limitations, um, and then and what are some of the other things that we can do with it? Um, and so this is one of the reasons that we wanted to have Bruce back on the show. But also uh, in our conversations, we've touched upon uh, some of Bruce's earlier work with, with Garmin and similar wearable data uh, and analysis that they've provided for us. And the, yeah, let's say somewhat questionable utility and accuracy of that analysis. So this is going to be kind of a, a two-parter episode. Rather, it's going to be one episode, but we're going to talk about two different things. We'll start with uh, with a little bit of an update on DFA Alpha 1, which is that analysis I mentioned for determining the aerobic threshold. And then we'll jump into the, the Garmin stuff. So uh, that's the introduction. Bruce, thank you so much again for your time, uh, for the time in answering all of our questions, but also for the time uh, you're taking today to join us and uh, sharing some more of your, your wisdom. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. All right, so uh, we've uh, in our in our in our pre-show conversation, we've realized that we're a little bit snug on time, so we're gonna jump right in, and we're gonna start with um, sticking to uh, the DFA Alpha One analysis. And uh, there's uh, a couple of things that uh, Bruce wanted to share with us before we started. Some some new findings. The first one relates to. Um, the use of Ant Plus versus Bluetooth in collecting the data. So very quickly, folks, um, you do need a, uh, a heart rate strap, and which we'll get into in order to collect the, the heart rate data, obviously. The, we've talked about this in the last episode, that optical sensors are not a good option for collecting this kind of information. Um, and then uh, clearly your strap needs to talk to some device in, in storing the or transmitting the, the heart rate data and specifically the, the R to R, the the time between peaks of your of your cardiac rhythm and there are two ways to do that of course and plus and bluetooth and uh, recently bruce has found that uh, one is su- far superior to the other then bruce take it away yeah um if if you buy a let's say polar h10 um heart rate monitor and you have your garmin watch your garmin head unit and you just hit the pair button and link them together uh the Garmin's will default to a transmission protocol called Ant Plus. 
and 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 plus is kind of a distant cousin to a Bluetooth. Uh, they use kind of very similar um, frequencies, uh, but it's it's kind of a one-way protocol. There's there's very little handshaking. And there's benefits and, and there's problems with that. One benefit with AND Plus, you could uh, transmit to unlimited devices. And I always kind of used to brag about that and say, wow, you know, um, I can now use uh, uh, one recording device um, on, my, um, on my watch. I could use a recording device on my um, uh, computer. I could use a recording device on my cell phone simultaneously to record mm-hmm. the, from the polar. And that, that sounds great, but the problem is with, without the handshaking, you get a lot of, you apparently get a lot of signal loss. And as, as the heart rate goes faster, um, you know, at, at uh, 60 beats per minute, one per second, and plus has no trouble keeping up. But if you start going 120, 150, 180 heart rate, uh, the and plus, again, no handshaking, seems to have a lot of packet loss. And I, I, I was reading, um, we were talking about Marco Altini. Uh, I, I learned something from him because he said, you know, I have this anecdotal experience where people tell me, you know, and plus is they, you know, giving, me, giving me a lot of artifacts, a lot of misbeat artifacts in, in the signal. And I, and I said, well, is there any evidence? You know, is there any data you can tell me? No, but this is kind of what I hear. And, you know, being the OCD uh, physician that I am, and I always have to, you know, prove it one way or the other. I mean, that day I went out and I said, okay, I'm going to delete my Ant Plus profile on my Garmin, and I'm going to repair the same heart rate monitor to the same watch using Bluetooth. And guess what? I did that, and for an hour of just moderate intensity riding, zero artifact. So I went from having, um, you know, two or three per per 100 beats, let's say, to having zero every 100 beats. Hmm. So that that's actually huge. And, and the Alpha 1 Index is very, very prone to artifact correction bias. And we wrote a paper uh, that appeared in Sensors uh, a couple of months ago. And it's kind of a little esoteric to some people, but it's important because if you get noisy data, it, it raises the Alpha 1 um, artificially. So let's say we, we are always looking to keep our alpha one above 0.75 to keep above the aerobic threshold. Well, if we have a lot of artifact, it's going gonna, it's gonna to artificially raise the alpha one. So we don't want to see all these misbeat artifacts, and that's what you get in AND+. And I, I have hit my head against the wall over the last several years. I don't know how many times trying – this heart rate monitor, I tried Polar, I tried Garmin, I tried Wahoo, I tried everything. Mm-hmm. And and they all artifacted, and they all artifacted because they all used AND+, because Garmin defaults to AND+. So it's really important for anyone listening to this. I would say this is like one of the most important things I've actually found over the last couple of years. Don't use AND+, for heart rate variability. Use Bluetooth.
So there's there is another limitation in there that uh, that comes in where Amp Plus I think the standard Amp Plus has a maximum frequency of four hertz, so that by its very nature would limit you to about 240 beats per minute, which hopefully you're not exceeding that. Um, but it is quite possible that you could miss some some small data in there just with the the timing of the different signals and and that's I'm sure a big reason why you're seeing uh, a lot of that difference. And Bluetooth is much more like you said, it's it's much more um, robust in terms of the handshaking, in terms of the ability to transmit data. Um, and the analogy I always use for anyone who hasn't pictured it uh, or hasn't thought about it before, but um, Ant Plus is more like a lighthouse where a whole bunch of things can see the lighthouse. And Bluetooth is kind of like making a phone call where if you if someone else is trying to you know dial that number, they get a busy signal. So it's a one to one protocol where. Ant Plus is one to many, and both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. But uh, Bluetooth is a little bit more robust in terms of having this this high quality data stream. The other thing, um, also of note, you brought up the limitation, the I should say older limitation in Bluetooth, where you can only have one receiver. The new Polar H10s, you can go in using the Polar Flow app on a cell phone and change that to two receivers. So I mm-hmm. can transmit to my Garmin watch and I could transmit to heart rate variability logger on an iPad mini simultaneously. Yes, that, that is a good point. And getting into the the weeds with the, the technical details, I know uh, Nordic Semiconductors is the one who provides most of the Amp Plus chips uh, or the Bluetooth chips. And they actually have released a new version of that or at least new soft device for it that allows up to, I think it's either 16 or 30 different uh, Bluetooth radio connections. Very few manufacturers implement all of those, but the technology is catching up with it so that it allows you to have multiple connections. But uh, anyway, I want to get out of this rabbit hole. This yeah. is <laughs> way too technical for most listeners. And plus we have, oh man, we have, we, we've got a lot for you folks. Uh, <laughs> this, this could be a quite a dense discussion. So um, with, that, uh, with that caveat about and plus versus Bluetooth settled, Let's cover some listener questions. So this is a mix of uh, of listener questions plus Michael Lieberzon questions because I've been actively, very actively using the the analysis using uh, Marco Altini's uh, HRV logger um, to to analyze some of this stuff. So the first question comes from this is kind of a, a question from Andrew and from myself is the use of straps uh, specifically the. How relevant is the brand of strap, uh, provided, of course, that you can get uh, uh, a detailed R to R signal from it? Bruce, any experience there? Yeah, um, and and just to step back a second, why it would be important that the quality of the strap or the algorithm of the strap um, mm-hmm. is a major factor. Why that's important? When we're looking at the A one index, it's an index of fractal patterns, all right, self-similar patterns that repeat, and also a correlation index. Correlation meaning patterns, again, that repeat. And if to recognize a pattern, we actually need to very accurately quantify the timing between each beat. So if we have a smear, okay, and, and we don't, we have hazy, uh, timing between the beats, the heart rate will look just fine. It's the same amount of beats per minute, but we've lost that very fine detail uh, between each beat that gives us those correlation patterns. Hmm. So it is actually very important to have a, a strap and a strap with an algorithm that accurately 
quantifies the peak of the signal uh, from you know on, on a very regular basis per beat. Now we know at least our own kind of internal testing. Polar has done a good job with this with the H series. Uh, the H seven we looked at in our sensors paper, and there was a little bit of a bias from the ECG, the electrocardiogram data, but it wasn't that much. The H10, according to their white papers, uh, to their data, is even sharper uh, with, with less of a smear. And I know I've looked at it personally myself, and it, it's, it's very much similar to the ECG tracings that I do. Um, I can't uh, speak to the Garmin's, the Wahoo's and such, but if, if I was you know, a purchaser and I, ha I, don't, I didn't have anything, I'd get a Polar H10. And I have nothing to do with the company, but I have trust in, in that particular piece of gear. Got it. I uh, I use the H9 personally. That's just it seemed like on the specs the the only difference was that the H10 would store data and the H9 did not. And the H9 was also fifty Canadian dollars cheaper. And I was like, oh, well, I'm gonna. Yeah. And it did uh, according to the specs, it did report uh, ECG quality data. So. Uh, that at least in the in Polar's own specifications, there was no difference there. So then I, I saved myself a couple of bucks that way. One thing I would be very careful of with other manufacturers is um, just with the firmware used, there could be a lot of averaging that goes on. Um, quite often, end users like to have a smooth signal because smooth is easy to read and interpret. So uh, mm -hmm. the yeah. there's no guarantee that what you're getting from any given manufacturer other than Polar, which has been tested, could be accurate ECG data. It could be something that's a five-second average placed on it just to remove any fluctuations, which people usually interpret as low quality, but could actually be one of the, the markers that you're looking for. Um, so that being said, I would definitely stick with Polar because it is the one that has been tested and validated. Yeah, the, uh, the other one I've tested was an older uh, Wahoo ticker strap, um, and I couldn't even tell you how old it was. It was one, I, one of the earlier generation ones. It does have the updated firmware, which someone suggested I double check, but the, uh, you know, reports heart rate accurately, but as far as DFA Alpha 1 analysis, it's totally useless. It was, you know, completely all over the map and, and giving me readings that were, that I knew were erroneous. So, you know, um, nothing against Wahoo. It's a great strap that I use all the time, but it's, it, it, for me at least, this one specific model of the ticker did not work. And again, there's a difference if you're looking for heart rate, uh, you know, all these things are fine. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you're looking for al dynamic Alpha 1 with, during exercise, then we really need the precision that the polar gives us. Right, right. Okay, moving on to the third question. This was a, uh, a listener question that was posted to uh, the website. Um, and uh, the question reads, could you please share your thoughts about cardiac drift and the evolution of alpha-1, assuming that uh, at zone one power, which is below the aerobic threshold, uh, during a long ride, when heart rate starts to drift, alpha-1 is decreasing and crossing that 0.75 uh, threshold that we established. Uh, am I right? This is this is a, a question from the listener. And this actually is a really amazing question, I think, because I've had a similar question. And that's why I think it's amazing. Um, what happens when you start to fatigue? And uh, Bruce and I actually had a little bit of a, a discussion before we started recording on this. And I'm going to ask him to uh, rehash all of the all of the things that he told me then. So the kind of uh, to summarize it, what happens to the alpha one indicator over the course of a long workout when fatigue uh, and maybe some other factors are in play? 
that that's an excellent question and one of the things we're looking at now uh, to, to, to you know step back a second with with cardiac drift um, cardiac drift is not necessarily caused by what you think it's caused by um, you know you can get cardiac drift when you're not dehydrated you're not hypoglycemic uh, it's it's essentially uh, a skin temperature phenomenon and if you have enough cooling um, and you're staying below your aerobic threshold, you really don't see much in the way of cardiac drift. Um, hmm. and, and, and as far as what causes it, it's kind of a very interesting thing, the chicken to the egg. Um, for, for many years, it was felt to be sequestration of blood into the skin, you know, to kind of radiate heat. So your blood volume drops, then your heart rate goes up. Um, or your, 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 and your vascular volume drops. But it's actually it's a, a series of elegant uh, experiments, I won't go into the detail, showed that that's really not the case. And what happens is, it could be hormonal, although it's really not sure what, but heart rate actually goes up when skin temp rises. And when heart rate goes up, uh, there's less time for the heart chambers to fill. So stroke volume goes down. So stroke volume, um, which is the amount of blood that swishes out every time the heart pumps, times heart rate is your cardiac output. So you have a stable cardiac output over time, but your heart rate's higher and your stroke volume is lower. Okay. Uh, so cardiac drift is not a, a really great thing to look at for fatigue. It's, it's kind of, a, again, a consequence of skin temperature and changing uh, uh, cardiac dynamics. Now, the alpha-1 in fatigue looks much more intriguing. Um, it, it, and again, we don't have a lot of data on this. We, we have some that we have submitted to some journals. We have some we're writing up in manuscript form right now. So I don't really want to you know, put too much out there uh, that, that's unofficial, but I'll tell you my personal experience. Okay. Uh, so I just uh, uh, put a post out of my blog uh, yesterday or the day before where I did a ramp. And then I did a series of high-intensity uh, uh, intervals, I trying to kill myself. And then an hour later, I did another ramp. And uh, sure enough, the A1 dropped about a significant amount of watts earlier in the second ramp. Uh, again, it's a fatigue phenomenon. Ways to quantify fatigue, uh, counter motion jumps. Uh, hormonal parameters, lactic acid, a bunch of different things to quantify exercise-induced fatigue. But it seems like the alpha-1 may be also something we can use where you see the alpha-1 is lower than it should be at a given amount of power that you're putting out. Not necessarily heart rate, because you may not see the heart rate drift if you have good enough cooling around you. And I had great cooling. I had the fan on high, the AC on high. So I had no problems there. Um, today, I actually did another one. I did a ramp and then I, I uh, did an hour at right under VT1, right under my aerobic threshold. Okay. And I did the ramp again. And lo and behold, there does not seem to be any change in the, in the ramp threshold. Um, a friend of mine who is a, a former elite athlete, um, did that this over the weekend, except he did two hours uh, below his aerobic threshold, a ramp before and a ramp after, pretty much identical. So it seems that if you keep your power down uh, well below your aerobic threshold, 
we don't see a change in the alpha one. That, that's good for a, a couple of reasons. One, it still gives us validity that it's, it's going to give us feedback if we're staying in zone one. Uh, number two, it's also showing that that particular exercise endeavor is not giving us a lot of fatigue effect. So if we want to have two hours in zone one, we are indeed in, in, in zone one for two hours and not having to worry about, gee, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going easy, but, I, you know, it's like doing an ultra marathon. Yeah. Um, you run for six hours real easy. I, I don't care how easy it is. That's still six hours of, of drain and you're going to be exhausted after, um, you know, do, do a, do a, you know, a century ride and you're going to see it. You're exhausted after, even if you're taking it easy. So, you know, fatigue is, is a concept that we like to talk about, but the alpha one may actually give us an objective measure of looking at it. That's fascinating. Which uh, may give us an early warning before we actually get there. Yeah, that's fascinating because something you mentioned in one of your answers to me is that um, alpha one seems to be multifactorial. So we don't exactly know what, what drives it necessarily, but it's an, you know, I'm just using your words here. It's an organismic kind of response where right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture of factors that could potentially capture fatigue, quote unquote. I'm using air quotes for those of you guys who can't see me, which you can't because even though we're on video, you were not recording. Recording it, um, the uh, that it could it it might be one of those cases where at a certain point it doesn't matter why it happens. The fact that it's happening is more important than than the reason why it happens, and that that could be a more useful signal to to the athlete um, than you know picking out a specific thing that oh my skin temperature is high or something else. Uh, just to get back to the the you know let's say the ultra marathon because we we actually heard writing up a study on that right now. Um, you can, you know, people who do ultra marathons can get into big trouble. I mean, liver failure, renal failure, severe muscle enzyme elevation, you know, organ damage, probably cardiac arrhythmias. I mean, it, that is not a benign event. Yeah. Uh, and again, if you look at the pace, the pace is still a very, very mild. It's not, it's not a severe pace. Um, and, and this, you know, my, one of my ideas for the A1 here is, to, especially in training, where you don't have a time on the line, you're not competing, but in training, you can, you can see where you're starting to decompensate uh, in training and, and stop mm -hmm. before you get into any, a danger zone. Yeah, that's super interesting. And that's actually a really nice segue to to our last question uh, having to do with uh, DFA Alpha 1 and, uh, and anaerobic threshold or aerobic threshold, excuse me, is my own experience with uh, cycling and running. And actually, I'm working with an individual who is having the, uh, who's having a very similar experience. And that is when I've done the, uh, the ramp tests that, uh, that Bruce recommended in our last episode, uh, on the bike, I have, I have beautiful data, you know, it's, it's repeatable. It's, you know, provided my, the other conditions are the same that I'm not exhausted and I'm reasonably well fueled. I get very consistent results and I get, and they're borne out not only in these ramps, but also in, you know, easy steady state rides that I've done that have been quite long where, you know, just like your friend, um, Bruce, the, uh, my my DFA Alpha One remains above 0.75, provided I'm you know reasonable with my effort over the course of you know three hours. I actually did a five hour ride on the weekend where it stayed 
pretty, pretty, you know, I only dropped below a couple of times when I did some bigger efforts. So that, that is awesome. I love it. I love it when I, when what I expect is what happens. <laughs> uh, but when I've tried using it running, I get data that didn't really make a ton of sense to me. And I thought it was, you know, I had a lot of theories about why that could be. And, but basically what was happening is I was getting uh, a signal that I was reaching, that I was crossing the aerobic threshold at a pace that seemed way too slow. You know, so um, I'm going to talk in metric, folks. Uh, I would expect, and I'm a little bit out of run shape and a little bit heavy, um, but I would expect my aerobic threshold to be somewhere around, you know, the five minute per kilometer mark, maybe slightly slower, maybe 510 minutes per kilometer. Uh, and I was getting the signal at closer to 545. And so I thought maybe it was because I'm jumping around off the sidewalk to avoid people because, you know, I live in a big city and there's lots of folks around, even on quiet streets. So I, and I don't have access to a treadmill because all the gyms are closed, although now they're open. Um, but uh, I went to a high school track uh, one evening last week and I ran laps and I was, I was very careful with my, with my pacing and I didn't have to uh, jump around too many other people. And still, five forty. I was I crossed the uh, I crossed the threshold at five forty five, and then at five thirty, which was my next step faster, I was consistently below 0.75, indicating that I was above my aerobic threshold. And I didn't feel above my aerobic threshold historically. That's you know a, kind of a slow pace for me. So it was um, it was a bit of a a bit of a question mark as to could my could my lack of run specific fitness be the cause because I've been doing a lot more cycling than running? Um, is it, is there something inherently different between testing, running and cycling? Uh, and you know, Bruce was my, was my go-to person for, uh, for trying to get an answer. So Bruce, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it could be several different things, but I'm going, you know, again, running and cycling do use different muscles and different efficiency patterns Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there have been studies back and forth on this about triathletes versus dedicated cyclists versus runners and, and such. I won't get into that, but what I will get into is something that has been very troublesome to me. In some of the tracings I've been looking at for quite a while now, um, and this actually goes back to some data I was looking at for cross-country skiing, um, where... The, the A1, um, in, in, and these were ramps, were, was dropping way too prematurely, hmm. uh, which is basically what you're describing. So, you know, to yep. find it rest and very, very minimal exercise, they're okay. And then, boom, they, they, they come right down. So they suppress way too early. And um, I didn't think much of that because it was some, with, with some older polar um, uh, units, the 800 series, which I don't particularly like. Um, especially after looking at that data. But I started to see this also with the H10, uh, especially with a friend of mine um, who I've, I've worked with. And uh, he's perfect on the bike. I mean, perfect ramps on the bike. And again, this, this fellow is an elite athlete, knows what he's doing. And he did a, he did a very simple run. And literally, the minute he started running, A1 went you know, through the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, to really suppress levels, which it should not have. And I, I um, you know, we've looked at this and I've looked at this in myself um, because I would occasionally get, not necessarily running, but wearing the, the an ECG sensor where the polar belt would normally go, the lower part of the chest. I would see kind of a, a instead of a nice smooth um, 
QRS complex. All right, that's that's the 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 electrical uh, signal of the of the of the heart contractility. I would see something that would kind of be very ugly looking. It, it would you know it would be tilted one way or tilted to the other. And and what I it's, it dawned on me, and I, I think this is what what's going on when you run. You're engaging trunk musculature, core muscles that you don't necessarily use cycling, as well as you're jumping up and down. You know, each step is, is some impact. Sure. And there seems to be, in, not in everybody, because not all runners have this, but I, I would, you know, maybe one in 10, maybe two in 10, some electromechanical um, artifact where, again, it's smearing the, the accuracy of the precision of those are peaks, the peak and the signal. Hmm. So it kind of you get a summation of signal based on the foot strike, based on the core musculature contractions, and we can't see this with a Polar H10. We can see this with an ECG unit, and I have numerous examples of this on my blog. A bunch of posts. I mean, it bugged the hell out of me to see this. Uh, it, it myself, um, and and I think that's what it is. And if if you see a discrepancy, trust the bike. Trust the bike. Trust the bike. Yeah. So when you say a discrepancy, like you're talking about, say, uh, heart rate at aerobic threshold, is that where you're is yes. that where you're pegging to? Yes. Okay. So you see, you know, let's say your your heart rate at aerobic threshold on the bike is 140, and yep. when you run, it's it's 120. That's uh, me. And, and, That's that, basically those are basically my numbers. My um, high one thirties on the bike and low one twenties on the run. Exactly, and that that's classic for what we're seeing. It it doesn't invalidate the technique. It, it's again, it's an some I think it's some sort of electromechanical artifact. We, we're in the very primitive stages of our understanding of how to use the index and how to make it sure. more valid. And and these are kind of little you know, hurdles we have to jump through. Uh, but it's right now, it's something that I would, I, I think it's real and I would trust the bike. I love this stage of research where you have these erroneous, potentially erroneous results and you either have to explain them or justify them. And for me, it's fascinating looking at uh, just all the the different things you have to to look into. Um, yeah, it's it's a really neat process because these could be real, they could be meaningful, they might not be meaningful, they could be sensors. Uh, it could be that the next generation of heart rate monitors, they're able to account for this. And knowing that this is now maybe a priority or is becoming a priority, it's something that can be incorporated into the algorithms that are used. So it's it's very fascinating to see or to to keep an eye on things over the next couple of years, I would say, just to see where the development goes and if this becomes a priority for the firmware developers. Right. And the thing is, nobody has really ever looked, um, you know, in, in as far as this is an important thing, as far as heart rate variability during exercise. At rest, it's not as important. You don't see these electromechanical disruptions at rest. Um, right. So this is only during exercise. And it's and again, because the A1 is looking at correlation patterns, it's much more um, influential in, in affecting that index than the other ones. 
And I will say we see something very similar with optical heart rate right now because it's still in its early stages for development. There's a lot of artifacts for movement. So when you're sitting in a lab setting and you're taking optical heart rate monitor uh, measurements, then it comes out as super clean data. But as soon as you start walking, as soon as you start having these movements where your skin is changing, where the blood is uh essentially having inertial effects and being pressurized or depressurized based on your arm swinging or something else, uh, it becomes very difficult to, to actually measure. So that's why optical is never, well, currently not a good choice for this kind of, uh, this kind of data. Yeah. And, uh, I'll throw in my, my two cents to, to our listeners, as far as a takeaway before we move on to the, the second part of the, the interview. And that is that no matter how useful and, robust a tool is, there are always limitations to it. And uh, it's it's very important to understand what they are so that you don't, you're not led astray. And uh, actually, this is uh, a useful segue into our, into, as I said, our second part of the conversation. And that is uh, the the metrics and the, the data analysis that a lot of the wearables are now throwing at users and uh, I think we're going to focus on Garmin, but we're not not to pick on Garmin. I think uh, I think many wearable companies are are guilty of this, uh, and that is providing uh, providing some some advice and some insights that may or may not be very accurate, as I said in the intro. So let's start, uh, Bruce, with uh, with what what these are, and uh, probably listeners who who have these wearables are aware. But just uh, to cover the the specific ones that we're going to tackle in this conversation. Well, uh, let, let's, you know, how I got into this in the first place. Um, I really have a lot to thank Garmin for because we wouldn't <laughs> be having this conversation if it wasn't for Garmin because, that's you know, right, that's right. a few years ago, I got a hot new Garmin watch, um, the Mark Athlete, and, and their big selling point was, hey, we're going to give you an accurate VO2 max and we're not only going to be so accurate, we're going to put it on the bezel. I mean <laughs> – it is engraved on the bezel. You can't get rid of this thing. Your VO2 max is always there 24-7, updating constantly for you. And I said, okay, yep. well, you know, Garmin's a big company. They, they got $3 billion in revenue. They got over 10,000 employees. I just looked that up, by the way. And, uh, you know, I, I, could, I could trust them. Um, you know, they, they know more than me. What, you know, what do I know? Um, so, you know, I got the thing. And I started to read about, you know, okay, um, didn't seem like it really, you know, made sense as far as the readings I was getting, because um, I would I would come back from like the best ride of my life mm -hmm. with like you know a personal record three minute max power, and my VO two max went down, and and you know it just didn't seem right. You know I, I started to like you know look at their you know research they cited. And, it, you know, it was like a little abstract here, a little abstract there, or, you know, somebody's personal thesis. Really, there was nothing in the literature that that proved this. And, and to date, anything in the literature as far as the Garmin VO2 maxes has been showing how erroneous it is, that it really is not that accurate. And, you know, to back off, let's let's just what, what is VO2 max? Yeah, I was going to ask you to 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 give us some context. I mean, most listeners to this podcast are probably deep enough into the uh, you know the the esoteric nature of of endurance training to know the concept, but let's let's define it for completion's yeah. sake. Well, you know, what's the V? The V is the volume of oxygen. O that's the O two that your, your peak volume of oxygen that you can utilize. So you know, think of of your. Body
body is a car engine. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have a car engine and it uses the gasoline and it sucks in air, you know, through the, you know, what we used to have carburetors in the, in the old days. And, you know, if, if you wanted to hop up your car, you know, I'm a lot older than you guys, you would get a carburetor or a low flow, uh, uh, you know, high flow air filter. So you get more air into there. And, and so basically all you're doing here uh, with VO2 is you're measuring how much oxygen your engine is using. And that, that's a measure of, of your, your, your engine capacity. Um, now, we could go above VO2 as far as power goes, but then we have to go anaerobic. We have to use non-oxygen requiring metabolic processes, and that's, that gets us into the lactate and acid-base disturbances, potassium issues and such, and that's not sustainable. So VO2 max has always been kind of a measure of how good an endurance athlete you are, and mm -hmm. there is definitely validity to that. Um, but many things, you know, depend on the VO2 max and, you know, what, so the VO2 max is basically, uh, determined by something called the FIC, F-I-C-K formula, uh, which goes way back, way, way back historically. And it's basically the cardiac output, which is the stroke volume. Again, the chamber squish, uh, like a balloon getting squished. Um, that's the stroke volume times the heart rate. So more squishes per minute. Um, that, that, again, that, that is, is, is more, uh, as far as, uh, uh, VO2 max, um, and also the oxygen extraction across the muscles, right. the arterial to venous oxygen difference. So if you have muscles that extract a lot of oxygen, you have a lot of capillaries, you have a lot of mitochondria, uh, you have all these, you know, advantages for endurance athletics. Um, mm -hmm. that, that your AVO2 difference is going to be bigger and, and your VO2 max is going to be higher. So these are all great things. But, um, you know, you could have two guys and one has a better VO2 max than the other. But the guy with the lower VO2 max could be a better endurance athlete. Totally. We actually are going to have a, a podcast that, that talks quite in depth about that with uh, with Bjorn from uh, from Aerotune in uh, in a couple of weeks, listeners. So we're we're going to do a quite a deep dive in, into okay, that. So this is a, a great no no. It's a it's a great it's a great little teaser slash primer to it. But you're yeah you're you're preaching the choir here. I totally agree with you. So again, VO two max is a nice number to have, but so what? Um, you know, again, it, are you a good endurance athlete or not? Well, you don't need a Garmin watch to tell you that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you should know that pretty easily by now. So, yeah, you know, there are a lot of different equations to measure VO2 max. Then the, the thing that Garmin wanted to do, and I, I do give them some credit for, is to put an algorithm out there where they could do it without the max. And that's key, all right, to estimate a VO2 max without going to a maximal effort. And what they're doing there is they're taking advantage of the relationship between heart rate and, and VO2 max, and VO2. Okay. So as heart rate goes up, remember, it's part of the Fick equation. The, the AV difference, the arterial venous O2 difference is usually about the same. And, and usually the stroke volume is, is ballpark about the same. Right through a pretty good part of that curve. So if you ever look at a ramp, an incremental ramp, VO2 is pretty much a straight line and heart rate is pretty much a straight line. So they're very much 
uh, synonymous with each other. And what they do here is they, they estimate your maximal heart rate, they look at your heart rate during the interval, and they, and they put it through some mathematical modeling, and they spit out a number. Okay. Uh, the, pro- the problem is it's still a mathematical number, and it, 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 it doesn't really take into account differences in temperature, fatigue. So you mm-hmm. know you, you do your a, a near personal best after a ten minute warm up versus a three hour you know uh, tough ride. Well, which is your you know a better effort? Well, it's after that three hour tough ride, and you know you For can sure. still do wonders. Uh, so they're not looking at that. They, they say they do, but they really are not. So there's a lot of context missing, is what I understand. A lot of context, and and. Uh, yeah. So, you know, again, the, that's how I got into it. Um, then they also say they can give you a respiratory rate based on heart rate variability. And that's also extremely false. Uh, studies have looked at that and the error rate um, looking at heart rate variability and respiratory rate is huge. I think I, I sent you some data, 42% error rate, really high. Wow. And then even so, so, I mean, respiratory rate, what do we care what our respiratory rate is? I mean, it's not something that's going to necessarily help us, especially with that amount of error. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'll say is uh, something called a performance condition. Performance condition, uh, some people call it aerobic decoupling. And it's funny, I did, a, I, you know, I, I saw that term and because people have brought it up I'm on Twitter now. <laughs> so people brought it up on Twitter. So I, I thought, I looked at it. It does not appear in Medline. I mean, I did a search in PubMed. No aerobic decoupling. It's not a, a quote scientific term, but I know what it's it is. It's a training peaks term. It's a it's it's. I think it's I think it's Andrew Coggin who 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 first started. I I could be wrong, so I apologize. But I think it it got popularized in uh, through through training peaks and, and right. the the related publications. Right. And and you know to make things simple, it's kind of a heart rate drift phenomenon where you know okay, I normally do have a heart rate of 130 at 200 watts, but now my heart rate. Um, is 110 at 200 watts. Wow, I'm in much better shape. And that generally is true, all right? And Garmin looks for that. But again, effects of temperature, effects of fatigue, effects of, you know, food in your stomach or no food in your stomach, hydration status, uh, sleepless night, all these things, they don't take that into account. Yeah. So on, on that note, uh, one huge frustration I have with the, the VO2 max numbers with, with Garmin is when you do something like, uh, well, Michael and I've been playing around with, uh, core body temperature sensors and there's a, uh, a test that they do a thermal ramp test. And when you do that, your heart rate is much, much higher than normal because you layer up for an indoor ride, you turn off the fan, and you don't take in any water during the, the ramp test. So Garmin comes back and says, well, your VO2 max has dropped by four or five. <laughs> and it's like, it's it's just so frustrating because you work so hard to, and even knowing that it's not really based in any kind of reality or not fully based in reality. I still find it frustrating when Garmin comes back and says, oh yeah, your, you know, your athleticism is decreasing, but it's, there's no context to it at all. Right. Or the quote, high aerobic shortage. If you're, if you're <laughs> into polarized training, you're going to get this yep. warning a lot from Garmin. And I get, yep. I mean, every day you, you got a high aerobic shortage. And basically what that means, I'm staying out of a, a kind of threshold power, which I want to do. I mean, that's the whole point of polarized training. You go low and you'd some really good high quality work. So you should have a high aerobic 
deficiency there. And but again, they, it's a one size fit all. There's no documentation. There's there's no choices for you. So if you were a, if you were a an endurance athlete, you would train different than if you were a sprinter. One hundred percent. I mean, you, you, you know, you guys know this, you, you, your coaches. And, and, you know, if you had, had a, a, somebody who said, look, I want to do really great in a 100-yard dash or, or, you know, 40-meter sprint or whatever, you're going to train that person uh, much differently than somebody who's doing ultra marathons. And their physical body is going to look different. You know, the muscle fiber type you want to have different. Garmin doesn't take any of this into account. I mean, they're spitting out these metrics without any input from you or your goals which I think is very wrong. So there are two kind of two takeaways that I, I get from this. And I've, I've thought about this, you know, quite a length and uh, listeners, there's actually a way to turn a lot of this stuff off. If it's, if it's, you know, pissing you off, like it does with Andrew and I've, I've turned it off on my, on my device. And I, you know, recommend that all the folks I work with turn off as many of these, you know, quote unquote performance metrics that Garmin, Garmin provides. Um, and I'll, I'll link to an article in our show notes d- detailing how to do that. If you're, if you're interested, uh, because, and this is an aside, I, you know, I'm still on, I, I went off Facebook as it was not helping my life and, uh, but I'm still on Instagram. So I see, I still see people posting like, oh, I'm in, I'm peaking right now, or I'm in, you know, in like improving my fitness and, or sometimes they'll be frustrated and be like, oh, I just had a great week. And now Garmin tells me I'm detraining. Why is that? And I'll just turn it off. Just turn it off. It's noise. So, so the two takeaways, sorry for that digression folks, is that, uh, that, that Bruce brought up that are really important is one, is the data accurate and reliable, which there's a lot of, you know, he brings up a lot of questions as to whether or not that's the case. And I, I happen to agree. And the second one is, is it useful, right? And this is something we've talked about quite a bit on the show. Um, if you'll remember, maybe a year ago, we've had, we had Michael Erickson of the excellent uh, That Triathlon Show podcast talking about the very thing that we're touching on now is, are these things useful? Does it make sense to pay attention to this stuff? Because even if it's 100% accurate, even if it gives you day-to-day, like, perfectly accurate, you know, gas exchange, verifiable VO2 max numbers. Um, what are you going to do with it? You know, is it useful or can it actually be uh, detrimental to your training? Can you, can you look at, you know, could it be a problem of, of missing the forest for the trees where you're looking at this one number and you're so fixated on it that you make training decisions based on it that are, no, that are long-term counterproductive? Right. Where you're not actually improving whatever it is you're trying to improve, which is what Bruce was getting at as to, you know, what sort of athlete are you, what your muscle fiber types are, what your goals are. Um, And you're so fixated on this one number, which at the end of the day doesn't help you win a race or finish finish your your Ironman triathlon. It's just it's just a number. So is it accurate? Is it useful? And I I happen to agree with Bruce that it's neither that these the the metrics that at least currently Garmin Garmin's providing to us are, are neither accurate nor useful. For what it's worth, my my number for VO2 max that Garmin provides is spot on. Like it's within, uh, I've, I've had lab tests done, I think three times now, and it's within, usually within like, you know, two milliliters uh, for, for, for the bike. So for me, Garmin's, Garmin's super accurate. But again, is it useful? No, not so much. What I will say though, it, to Garmin's credit, because we're taking a lot of shots at them here and they're not around to defend <laughs> themselves. That's true. Uh, but what I will say is, is quite often in order to get scientific advancement, someone needs to take a bit of a leap with this and present something that is ultimately wrong or not useful. But then uh, it, it highlights the deficiencies and it does eventually lead to a better model for this. Um, so 
yeah, it may be a bit of uh, a bit of a red herring in terms of your training, but it's uh, it's something that could be improved upon in the future, and it's something that you know, kudos to them for for at least putting it out there. Yeah, I I agree with both your sentiments. Um, I still, and again, I know better, but it's still, and I I, I got to find out how to turn this off. By the way, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's still bug. I'll, bugs say, I'll send you that link, Bruce. It still yeah. bugs the hell out of me when it's telling me I'm oh, doing yeah. this, that, and the other thing wrong, and you know, uh, my numbers are getting worse. I've, you know, again, it was way off of my VO two max, probably because I'm a lot older than their normal model is, um, and. What I did, I, I, I decreased my weight by 20 pounds on the watch to try to get it to, you know, register better. Uh, so I kind of, par- I, you know, I hacked it myself that way. Uh, you know, it, it would be nice, you know, it, it, they, in some of these more deluxe products they have, instead of doing this, they, they give you a coupon to go to some center to, you know, get your VO2 max done. And, and get it done professionally. It's, you know, I, ha- I had it done at the University of Florida. It wasn't that costly. It was about $100. And, you know, boom, you know what it is in an hour. Um, so, you know, there are ways around it. Garmin could do if they actually wanted to. And, you know, again, this is a big company. Um, and, and again, why are they giving you these numbers uh, if, if they um, really had some uh, kind of theme behind it. I don't, I don't fully understand what they're trying to do here because it, it, it obviously is, is not, it's again, a one size fit all approach for, and you, you don't really need that as far as this type of product goes. Yeah. I think it's uh it, it is, it is a matter of, you know, sometimes creating features so that you could differentiate yourself in a, in a very crowded marketplace. I think it could be, it could be definitely a bit of a marketing play. Uh, but I, I definitely agree with, with Andrew's point that it's uh, that, you know, in order to, in order to develop these tools, you do have to put them out there because one of the things that Garmin is most likely doing is it's, you know, it's got data from millions of cyclists and runners and rowers and swimmers and everybody else. And, you know, hopefully I have no idea since I have no, no formal relationship with them. Um, hopefully they're using that, that, that big data to improve their algorithms and improve it you know, improve their ability to provide these, these values. But I'll say too that, and this is something I mentioned earlier in the show as a tool, it's, you know, it, it may have some, some potentially limited utility if you're trying to do something, something very specific, but it is, it does behoove us as, as users and as practitioners to understand what those limits are. I, I view, again, I, I, I am a physician, you know, um, practicing physician for many, many years, not, not a research physician. And, you know, I always would be very skeptical about direct marketing from the drug manufacturer to the consumer. And, you know, you'd see mm-hmm. these commercials. And then of course, at the end, they'd guy have a guy, you know, speaking about 300 words per minute of all the side effects. Um, <laughs> yeah. So again, it, 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 people, uh, you know, may not see your podcast. And, and they, they don't necessarily read about this. And again, just like me, Garmin's a big company. They have a very nice marketing approach, beautiful website, nice ads. And, and you know, they, they have, I think, a, a responsibility to stand behind their claims on a product. And that's the part that upsets me. Yes, we can turn off these recommendations and such. But if I was a well-meaning guy, weekend warrior type, and I said, okay, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to go out buy a Garmin product because Garmin says they're going to, you know, help me train. 
but but again, that that part disturbs me because they're not giving them useful, accurate information. Yeah, no, that's a fair that's a fair point. There's definitely a lot of room to improve that product, that side of the product, at least. Yeah, and I think this is just a, a bit of a byproduct of kind of the capitalistic society that we're in, where everyone is in their best interest to sell more product. And how do you do that? Well, better right. advertising or more effective advertising, whether or not it's better advertising is, I guess, what we're debating. But uh, yeah, it's as, as a shareholder for their company, uh, sorry, I'm not a shareholder, but as someone who would be a shareholder, um, they would absolutely want them to sell more product and do it as tangentially ethically as they could. Um, (laughs) And it it becomes a a very, very much a gray area. And you hear about this with pharmaceutical companies all the time where there's something that's on the market and then all of a sudden gets pulled off. And yeah, maybe the tests weren't done properly or the the studies to, to have something released. It's just as a company, it's something that is in their best interest, I think, is to make it as appealing to the general public as they can. And that is done by providing these features that make the average person think that they're going to do better in day-to-day athletics. I think they could do both. I, di- I don't think it would take that much more to do both. And that's that's the thing that mystifies mm-hmm. me. And why I, I put those numbers out, again, you know, a billion-dollar company, a lot of employees, uh, heck, they, they bought First Beat. Yep. which is a you know the uh, Scandinavian metrics company that does all the heart rate variability and you know all the optical heart rate algorithms and such again a lot of bright people there you know these are not dummies and and deep down they they know this stuff and I again I it just perplexes me why they can't come up with a better way of, of presenting this and, and give people a choice and maybe a little explanation like okay what do you want to train for you know uh, you know what's your goals uh, you know, okay, uh, you know, what are the weaknesses? You know, we're going to give you your VO2 max. It's an estimate. If it goes up and down 10%, don't necessarily pay attention to that because that, that's within the, the limit of error. Yeah, I think I, if I was to take a like a, a guess at, uh, at what they're up to, it's because their market is just so varied, right? Like if you're getting into, you know, if you're talking to wonks like us who are, you know, who are really do, doing a much deeper dive than probably 99% of the folks that buy these wearables are going to do, um, then, you know, you run into problems like this. But for the that weekend warrior, I totally agree with you, Bruce, that it's a little bit of disingenuous advice. But in terms of, um, in terms of added utility, uh, I think that at a, there's, there's some really good evidence that at a certain level of fitness, you can throw anything at the wall and it'll stick, right? <laughs> I think we can, we can all agree that if you're, if you're taking somebody off the couch, provided you don't break them, you know, most training advice, if it motivates people to go and ride a bike or run or swim or, you know, paddle a canoe, is going to be useful. It's going to improve aerobic fitness, muscular fitness, um, quality of life. All of those things are are all big, big, big positives. So my kind of, if I had my rose-colored glasses on and if I was giving Garmin the big benefit of the doubt, I would suspect that that is what they're trying to accomplish, that they're trying to give a little bit more inf- information that the, perhaps the less, um, you know, the less... It, in the weeds user is going to is going to still derive some utility from and there's there's probably some motivation component too where that's it psychologically if you see your numbers going up uh that's going to motivate you even further because the last thing you want to find out is you know you hop off the couch you start running oh i've gained five pounds like that's not going to (laughs) motivate you to continue running uh but if you see these numbers like your vo2 max going up or you see 
well, weight is what a lot of people go back to, uh, you know, the off the couch athletes, but, um, but some of these other metrics, like maybe your resting heart rate goes down, uh, things like that, that can be motivating for keeping people exercising. And I think from a societal point of view, I think we could benefit from a lot more people getting that exercise. So, um, I agree with you. I agree with I, I agree with you there. Yeah, it's funny how we've gotten into such a philosophical debate about I know. Uh, advertising <laughs> and metrics and. <laughs> I, I think the bottom line, though, is yes, it's advertising, and it's a lot of their marketing approach. And if you are a serious fitness enthusiast, um, yes, do not pay any attention to it and and don't go mm-hmm. by their recommendations. I think that that's the bottom line here. I think that's a that's a great uh, that's a great takeaway, yes. So, I guess if we could take a step back towards uh, some of these metrics, um, one one question I would have is what do you see happening in the next 2 to 3 years as research improves? Like are, is there going to be more access to uh, to some of these uh, heart rate variability metrics? So, assuming that manufacturers start to to clue into this and get the information or get the notice that more people are interested in measuring this and the devices continue to improve and they, they provide better reporting of the data. Um, what would be kind of the next step that you would see? I, that's a really good question. And I, I have thought about it a lot, um, over the past year. And, and that's kind of one of the reasons that, um, we've done the order of, of, publishing and, and study investigation that we've done. Because if this is going to hold water long term, not only do you need solid validity, but you need to look at it in various models and you need to look sure. at it in practical terms. So, um, you know, we, we, we put out uh, something kind of a perspective review, putting the idea out there. That was our first Frontiers paper. Then we did a validation study in runners using ECG tracings. So we used the highest quality um, uh, device data we could manage with literally no artifacts. Mm -hmm. The only artifacts would be any type of cardiac arrhythmia. So there are no missed beats, very high high quality ECG. So we had a good validation study there. And then the next thing we did was look at the effect of uh, missed beats. So if this is now more practical. So yeah, if you're using either AND plus or even Bluetooth, you're going to get some missed beats, especially the high intensities. Is that going to mess the index up? Um, and it does not mess the index up as long as you're below 5%. So we're actually pretty good there. Uh, then we also, at part of that study, looked at the Polar H7 versus the ECG. And although there was a little bit of bias, it wasn't um, a deal breaker. It was a little bit. I, I think the H10 is even less of a bias. So uh, our next, you know, we have uh, several papers getting reviewed right now, looking at this as far as the lactic, first lactic acid threshold, looking at it in, in more elite athletes, cycling versus running, um, looking at uh, as far as um, marathon, um, you know, behavior over a marathon, as far as the fatigue issue goes. Um, so again, we're, we're trying to look at different models um, different populations. So it's not just the 40-year-old guy who's in really good shape. It could be the 60-year-old guy in heart failure. Mm-hmm. It could be the 18-year-old triathlete who is um, world-renowned. Uh, it, it works the same. And it's a, it, at least our, our, the, you know, the DFA Alpha 1 is a dimensionless, 
dimensionless index. So a 0.75 for you signifies the same 0.75 for me as far as where our physiologic intensity is measured. So um, we've, I, I've kind of wanted this thing to have a, a kind of orderly logical progression. So yeah, some, some, some of these companies take notice and maybe incorporate it into, into their programs and, and their metrics. Uh, it's not hard to do. Um, Marco Altini has done a phenomenal job uh, with his heart rate variability logger, uh, which mm-hmm. is iOS and Android now. So yep. you can you can do this in real time. You don't have to buy Kubios for three four hundred dollars and sit down after with all the you know spreadsheets and figure this thing out. Um, so yeah, it's come a long way. And and yeah, uh, you know, six months or a year from now, if we have, have a conversation, we'll we'll talk about this. Yeah. Marco, if you're listening, one thing that you absolutely have to add, according to me, is uh, is a Connect IQ data field for our Garmin for the Garmin users. I know you've added an Apple Watch. Uh, I don't know if they call them data fields, but you know what I mean. I think they're called complications. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I like it. But uh, Marco, if you can add a, a CIQ data field for your Garmin's, well, you still will need the phone, of course. But just so we can see, um, especially running or cycling, um, without pulling out your phone where your Alpha One sits. That would be a big thumbs up for the, uh, the you know, the, the folks that are using your product, specifically me. On a personal note and and somewhat, uh, well, a biased view, uh, full disclosure. So as a Four Eyes employee, um, I would love to have Marco and Bruce sit down. I was going to say at a table, but that's not really a reality in, in the current environment, but uh, have a discussion with Four Eyes um, and anyone else who wants to get involved. So if anyone from Polar is listening or any other heart rate monitor manufacturer, um, just to talk about how this can be rolled out on a, a bigger scale, because I think there's a lot here. And I think it's something that mm-hmm. working together, um, we can help to improve the the data avail- availability for everyone. Um, because there's certainly some things from a heart rate monitor standpoint that could be improved. So I know uh, digging around, I don't even know how I found this, but digging around in the Apple Watch, uh, they do live heart rate variability measurements, but this is based on optical. So it's only really valid at rest, but they actually show the R peak times to, I think, millisecond timing. Um, so for example, if uh, if data were output VA Amp Plus that actually had the R to R timing, um, so that variability could be directly interpreted. Uh, that could help with calculating some of this, uh, some of these metrics, but it could also help potentially with uh, detecting arrhythmias or, or something like that. Um, I've on a, another personal note, I've been reading a book right now, uh, the heart or the Haywire Heart. Um, which talks a lot about arrhythmias and uh, cardiac issues in endurance athletes. So it's, it is very interesting to see some of this come full circle. And if um, improvements in monitoring heart rate could lead to detection, early detection of some of these issues and potentially um, maybe not save lives directly, but help people detect when they are at risk for these, these issues, because it is something that's a bit of concern. I, I will tell you a, a relatively inexpensive product you can use um, from Sunto, um, the MoveSense Heart Rate Plus. They they have uh, two units. They have a medical ECG module, which is kind of pricey. It's about a couple hundred bucks. But the Heart Rate Plus actually can do the same thing. Um, 
and and you could actually flash the firmware, uh, the new firmware. I did this. I thought I was going to brick it, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> from the MoveSense ECG to the HeartRate Plus, and make it a, a you know, basically an ECG unit, and and you get really a nice single lead ECG if you're ever concerned about arrhythmia, and that's I when I when I did that crazy two interval, um, um, you know, hit with two ramps, uh, you know, on mm-hmm. either end, I was wearing the ECG the whole time. Um, cause I, I was curious about, you know, am I going to get any arrhythmias? I'm 64 years old. So I got to be careful here. You know, I'm an old guy and, <laughs> and no, no, it was, it was fine, but uh, yeah, I, I share your, your concern with it. And for, for under $100, I, I don't know what the exact figure is, as far as euros to to you know Canadian or whatever, but it's maybe sixty you know American dollars. The heart rate plus is a is a valid ECG single lead ECG that you can use either with Android or iOS. Could you use it for uh, for DFA Alpha One? Absolutely, but and this is the but um, it it the the uh, I don't know if you want these details. If you if you look at the output from some of these uh, uh, strap units, they're not high sample rates. And the sample rate for the Sunto units, these Sunto units, for RR are only 125 hertz. So Hmm. we're not getting good R precision. But in ECG mode, we can go to a sample rate of 500 which gets us basically essentially the same as the polar, and I've I've run them side by side, and, and they're they're identical pretty much. So um, I always, I again, you you'd want to use it with their app running on your smartphone, and you then you would need a software to interpret the ECG, mm. and unfortunately, you would need Kubios for that. Understood. So that, that that's not as easy. Right. It wouldn't it wouldn't work with uh, with Marco's HRV logger app. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, Bruce, this has been, uh, you know, another, another excellent conversation. You know, it's, uh, it's always so much fun and, and really, you know, an opportunity for me to learn, uh, and to, uh, to grow my own understanding with, with all of these things. And even where, where I had a pretty good idea of where you were going with the Garmin stuff, the, the developments in the, um, in the HRV DFA alpha one analysis that that's really, that's really fascinating. And it's really, really encouraging to know that it is, it is in obviously in development and you guys are still doing so much work on it. And you mentioned that, uh, um, you're, it's being incorporated into, into other platforms now. And, uh, yeah, I can say that I've, I've seen some of it being incorporated into, into things that are, that are making an impact. So that's, uh, that's always awesome to see as well. Runalyze has it, um, and Athletica, which is another online platform, um, also is going to incorporate that as well. That's right. And so uh, I'm actually doing some work with Athletica currently, and uh, so I'm seeing it in the in the back end on some of the some of the cycling plans that they're that they're using it. And it's a it's a different protocol than what you and I have talked about. But uh, I'm very excited once they once they roll it out to to give it a try. I'm going to be I, I suspect I'm going to be one of the uh, the hamsters that that gets to test it before it uh, before it's rolled out to everyone else. You and me. 
I'm going to yeah, do it. Yeah, too. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so again, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to share your wisdom with us, Bruce. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And listeners, uh, thank you as well for for tuning in and uh, spending some time with us. And as always, uh, our ask is that you uh, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And then uh, share it with your friends because uh, if you find it interesting, chances are some of your cycling, triathlon, running nerds will, will too. Thanks, everyone. And Andrew, maybe you can make a heart rate monitor that works for me for running. That's your that's your mission. All right. Should you choose to accept it, you can be. You're not alone. That is, you, you, there's plenty of people just like you. Good, good. I know. I, at least, I, at least, I don't feel bad. I mean, I don't, I don't feel bad. I was like, I've started running much slower, and I feel great because also my running has been so far behind that running a little bit slower is not hurting me at all. Um, but it did. It was a little bit of a blow to the ego when I saw these numbers. Like, oh, that can't be right. And now I kind of know that it's probably it might not be right.